Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. And it goes a little something like this. Here we go. Well, I ain't got nothing but a little soul, a little tune to play to make the good times roll. I ain't got nothing but a bag of green to dance the shoes and my friends with me. I ain't got nothing but a little soul, a little tune to play to make the good times roll. This one, this one is gonna be about the very important concept of pursuing achieving peak performance without the necessary suffering that we have come conditioned to believe is part of the fitness process. This program goes out to fitness enthusiasts of all levels. So if you're a hardcore, extreme competitor, great stuff, you think you know everything, just like many multi-sport athletes that I've been around and been accused of being myself, uh, all the way down to the casual fitness enthusiast who is trying to do right, head over to the gym, attend a class, be a regular attendee of your spinning class, boot camp class, personal training session, whatever it is. And we know that we go in there and we're going to perform some work, push ourselves, maybe suffer a little bit, maybe feel at the end like we got a great workout and we're accelerated and we're flooding our system with stress hormones, feeling that endorphin buzz right away. But over time, due to the nature of the workout, containing too much suffering, too much hard work for too long of a duration, not well formulated, what happens is we drift into these chronic patterns which are so dangerous and destructive. One simple sign or symptom is that you feel lazier and more sluggish throughout the day because you did some impressive workout in the morning. Believe it or not, you're not supposed to feel like a slug the rest of the day because you did something in the gym or out on the roads in the morning. So this show is about rethinking some of the basic notions of athletic training, getting rid of this no pain, no gain mentality for once. And of course, I'm not the first person to criticize this and we all nod our head and realize that overtraining is bad and injury and illness and burnout. But unfortunately, the notion that exercise or that fitness pursuits equal suffering, I believe is still deeply embedded into the DNA of many competitive athletes and also many fitness novices who don't know any better and think that this is part of the game, that they have to get up there and suffer in the name of fitness. That's why we have a lot of attrition and inconsistency in the fitness scene. People paying their monthly membership but rarely going to the venue because they associate it subconsciously with too much pain and suffering. For good reason, they're avoiding their workouts because they're not conducted in a responsible manner and they're not generating a fitness response. They're only generating more fatigue and more stress in our already stressful everyday lives. So let's right this ship right now and get things straight. So I want to give you four quick insights 
that have really helped me recently. This is recent information, even though I've been a fitness enthusiast my whole life and knowing the dangers of overtraining, illness, and injury, I've tightened things up even more after some great interviews and recordings, including on the Get Over Yourself podcast. So uh, what a wonderful opportunity to engage with these people, especially uh, going back with my uh, great discussions with Dr. Phil Maffetone, one of the legends of the endurance training world for several decades, having coached some of the greatest triathletes of all time, Mike Pig, Mark Allen, Tim DeBoom, and his influence is now finally getting its due in the mainstream endurance circles. He's been saying the same stuff for 30, maybe even 40 years, slow down emphasize aerobic development, cut out of all that sugar and grain consumption, eat more healthy, nutritious fats. And so now the world is waking up, catching up to what Maffetone's been saying forever. So emphasizing that maximum aerobic heart rate of 180 minus your age in beats per minute, that's the Maffetone formula to calculate a heart rate, a training heart rate that represents the maximum fat oxidation, that's your maximum fat burning point, and where you have a minimal amount of anaerobic stimulation or glucose burning. So it's a very comfortable heart rate. If you think about it, uh, 180 minus age, let's say I'm 50, I'm not, I'm close enough, but 180 minus 50 is 130. So a training heart rate of 130 beats per minute represents a pretty slow jog for someone like me. Maybe an elite athlete is running along at a decent, brisk, but comfortable pace and a novice fitness enthusiast. Remember, the heart rate is all relative. So whatever this represents to you when you calculate 180 minus age and put on a heart rate monitor and notice what your heartbeat is, that is your maximum training heart rate to deliver the fat-burning aerobic benefits to make the workout refreshing and energizing rather than fatiguing. This causes many people, both elites and recreational exercises alike, to have to slow down or slow way down from what they're used to doing because we're used to getting this stress response activated. We feel like we're performing work, accomplishing something important, doing a workout, but we're exercising at far too high of a heart rate to deliver these aerobic benefits and minimize the stress impact. So that was Maffetone's first insight that your cardiovascular workouts, the vast majority of them should be performed at maximum aerobic heart rate or below 180 minus age. The second mind-blowing insight that I got from Maffetone during interview, this is back a couple years ago now, about 25 years too late to help me when I was racing on the professional circuit, was his contention that you need not ever exceed 90% of your maximum heart rate even during the most intense and explosive uh, training sessions. Wow. So if you think of most people can get their heart rate up somewhere around 200, young people, maybe older will go to a maximum of 190 or 180. So you're talking about 10% off that is nearly 20 beats. So the difference for me, I can promise you from doing an interval workout where I'm hitting uh, the half mile repeats like we used to do in the old days on the track and getting that heart rate up to 185, 190, 190 plus, imagine taking 10% off that and just doing a much less stressful but still very impressive workout and building off that foundation where I never slam myself in training 
but I just build, build, build my fitness in training without that huge risk and high energy cost of a maximum heart rate workout. The return on investment simply is not there when you compare a workout at 90% of maximum heart rate, and this is a very explosive high-intensity session, getting your heart rate almost up to max, but the difference between 100% and 90% and the overall stress impact Let's say from a big picture, annually, if you're backing off 10% on your hardest workouts, you're going to benefit more than you're going to lose any fitness adaptation for sure. And guess what? If you're in a, uh, a, a big race, your peak performance effort, and it comes down to a sprint finish, and you got to go 100% to beat the guy out to take 17th place instead of 18th, hey, that's a great time to bring your heart rate up to 100%. And if you take care of your body, and you eat right, and you sleep well, and you train sensibly, the big engine is going to be able to rev up, and you're going to have something left in the tank. So there's the secret right there, training at aerobic heart rate and never exceeding 90% of maximum heart rate. Interestingly, Dr. Maffetone's got a book out called 159 Marathon, talking about the magical barrier uh, in the in the event marathon, the 26.2-mile run, where the world record is now two hours and two minutes. It's been steadily lowered over the past 30 years, down from 208 to 207 to 205, and now people are getting excited, wondering if the human can run a marathon in under two hours. You know what this represents? It's like an average mile pace of four minutes and 40 seconds or 42 seconds or something absolutely insane. If you don't have a reference point, go to your local high school running track, 400 meter track, and run a single lap and try to do it in about 71 seconds. That's a 444 mile pace. And you'll see that for almost all of us, that represents a full sprint. Uh, Most of us can't come anywhere near that time, but even the fittest among us out here in the community running one lap at a pace of world record marathon was is enough to put us on the sideline. And so imagining these great runners going 26.2 miles, holding that sizzling pace, and we're right there knocking on the door, Uh, But Maffetone's contention, interestingly, is that the record will be broken by an athlete who is doing less mileage and less intensity than today's marathon champions. He believes that we're, uh, generally speaking, the elite athletes of the planet, the Olympic medalists, the people we see on TV, are training too hard and have not sufficiently optimized their stress and rest pattern so that further breakthroughs are availed, but it's not from running longer because these guys are already out there running 130, 140, 150 miles per week training for the Olympics and training for these grand marathons, the big city marathons where you see these guys running at the front of the pack. Okay, so those were Maffetone's insight. Second, the great show that I did with Brian McKenzie of Power Speed Endurance, one of the early shows on the Get Over Yourself podcast. So what an honor to be able to sit with the guy who represents the absolute cutting edge of fitness, philosophy, training methods. And Brian's been around for a while. Uh, He's been a controversial figure at times because he was upsetting the status quo, especially in the endurance community where they had a narrow focus on accumulating a lot of volume to predict peak performance. And instead, he brought in a more broad-based approach, uh, the founder of the CrossFit endurance movements, where he was convincing these endurance athletes that if they did some stuff in the gym, like climbing a rope or doing uh, vertical jumps on the box or putting heavy weight on their back and going down and doing some squats, this would actually translate directly into peak performance. And 
great success with that approach. Also misunderstood by a lot of people. That's how he got the controversy uh, based on uh, silly headlines like his feature story in Outside Magazine that was titled, Brian McKenzie's Controversial New Approach to Marathon Training. The mastermind behind CrossFit Endurance says the best way to train for a marathon is to run less and torture yourself more in the gym. Well, not really, as I detail in my intro to that show. Uh, but here's what Brian's operation, his website, his consulting business is all about. Check this out. Breathing, recovery, training, strength and conditioning, endurance, programming, sports-specific programming, mechanics, injuries, nutrition, and sleep analysis. Does that sound like a guy that wants to torture you in the gym in favor of having you run more miles? No, it's a very sophisticated and nuanced approach that puts all the pieces together and avoids these disastrous chronic patterns that we've been engaging in for so long. Uh, as you'll hear in the lengthy show, of course he supports the importance and the necessity for the endurance athlete of putting uh, time in, putting time out on the road, and not to forget that it's pretty easy to get to A-plus conditioning level with your endurance. But then the shortfall for many endurance athletes, not enough power and speed in there, seem to do some explosive training. Uh, we need to have some more attention to flexibility, mobility, and functionality. Brian's close associate, Kelly Starrett, K-Star, advocates strongly for uh, endurance athletes and athletes in other sports to dedicate 15 minutes of every training hour to flexibility, mobility, and functionality. These would be drills, stretches, exercises that support proper technique, preserving proper technique while fatigued, and all that fun stuff. And lately, as you'll hear in the show with Brian, he's big on the breathing side. Wow, what's the big deal about breathing? My first reaction is like, huh? I've always had plenty of air to breathe when I was performing my endurance sports. And when I was sprinting, I think the, the burning in my legs was the limiting factor rather than not getting enough air into my lungs. But this is turning into be a huge deal and a huge breakthrough in the fitness scene. The attention to proper breathing, breathing drills and exercises, some of them designed to stimulate parasympathetic nervous system activity, which is a huge component of recovery and promoting and stimulating proper recovery from stressful exercise. Because when we're training, we're in that fight or flight state, we're in that sympathetic nervous system dominance, and we need to bring that down and learn how to chill out and calm down and facilitate the recovery process uh, effectively and on demand, really. So when we get good at breathing, we're able to kind of hijack the uh, autonomic nervous system, which is usually involuntary, and take some involuntary uh, activities mechanisms into voluntary. We can take control of the recovery process and teach ourselves to calm down through breathing exercises. Wow, that was a ramble, but that came out okay, actually. That's exactly what I'm trying to get across. Look no further than the incredible phenomenon uh, started by this character named the Iceman, Wim Hof, W-I-M-H-O-F. He's an internet sensation. His breathing protocols have uh, spread like wildfire in the progressive health fitness community. And I was telling some friends about this guy, and I said, yeah, this guy, using breathing drills, uh, teaches people to overcome uh, 
the usual problems, the resistance to exposure to cold and perform amazing feats like climbing a snowy mountain in the winter wearing just running shorts after one week of training. And Wim himself, I said, this guy climbed Mount Everest in running shorts. And two of my friends called alarm, complete bullshit on me. So I went and searched for the internet articles. And sure enough, he attempted a Mount Everest summit and made it to 24,500 feet in elevation, wearing nothing but running shorts, all through his breathing drills. This guy's the real deal. I did a podcast with a guy named Scott Carney, author of a book called What Doesn't Kill Us. He's an investigative journalist who uh, has made a career of debunking guys who are BSers and gurus that are dispensing flawed information. He couldn't wait to do the same to Wim Hof, but instead he became a devotee and performed some magnificent feats of his own with very brief exposure to Wim Hof's training methods. So there's a little plug for breathing and Brian McKenzie and working through the show. Um, yeah, I actually have notes and trying to keep it on thread here, man. So first we talked about Maffetone. Uh, monitoring that maximum aerobic heart rate, knowing that you'd never really have to go over 90% of maximum heart rate when you're doing workouts. And if you're listening now going, why do I care? I'm just a person that goes to spinning class a couple times a week and works with my trainer and wants to keep fit. Guess what? You do some of those gnarly gym workouts, group training sessions, you're going to bust that heart rate right up and over 90 and close to 100. And you're going to feel great when you make it to the 20-second countdown and the loud music is booming through the gym. Oh, but guess what? We're talking about return on investment and we're talking about the stress impact of the workout thrown into your busy, stressful life, not necessary. So dial things down. Dial that handle down on your spinner bike. That's what it's there for. Reduce the resistance and make the workout a little tiny bit easier and you'll be better off for it. So that was Maffetone. Then we got Brian McKenzie advocating for that broad-based approach rather than the narrow focus And this is even if you have distinct goals, like you're just a trail runner or you're just a tennis player, you want to have that broad-based approach, especially bringing in the important concepts like breathing. Uh, He's also big on heat therapy, cold therapy. You can find him on the internet. Uh, Look at both of our videos about cold exposure and uh, you'll be dialed in with the latest, greatest recovering techniques. So that's Maffetone, Brian McKenzie. Then I did a fabulous show with Joel Jameson, the expert in fitness who's known in the MMA community for training world champions. He's been around forever, offering groundbreaking insights every time. And at my podcast interview with him, he blew my mind when we got further into his recovery-based training methods, especially the concept of rebound workouts. What are rebound workouts? Those are the sessions you perform when you're trying to recover from high-stress training sessions. So the day before you did a big one, you did your your intensity, uh, you did your long-duration workout, and then you're trying to recover. And for my whole entire athletic career, I considered myself a pro at recovery, and guess what I did? I sat on the couch, I made myself sleep more, I went to the video store and rented VHS tapes. That shows you how (laughs) dated my career is now. 
going back to the ancient concept of VHS videos, but generally speaking, I tried to sit around as much as possible and reduce my overall activity in the name of recovering from my super important high-stress training sessions, whether they were intensity stuff, whether it was a race, or whether it was a long-duration, long-ride, long-run, something like that. Then, this guy flipped that concept on its ear, Joel did, by advocating for a distinct training protocol that can actually help speed up recovery time. So what do you do? You show up at the gym and you do these distinct exercises protocols to stimulate parasympathetic activity again. Also, getting the blood flowing, getting the oxygen going through your system will also contribute to enhanced recovery. Obviously, we're not doing anything strenuous or stressful if we have sore, stiff muscles or generally feeling fatigue from hard workouts. But you go in there, you do a series of breathing and stretching exercises, mobility work, uh, range of motion exercises, and then some interesting techniques such as doing an interval, a sprint interval for a very short duration, let's say seven to 10 seconds, and then taking the next minute to recover. And during that recovery time, making a concerted effort through devoted breathing exercises to try to lower that heart rate down into recovery zone. So the act of intently focusing on lowering your heart rate is a way to engage the parasympathetic response, and it's something that you can do in daily life to reduce the overall stress impact of your workday, your hectic commute, and in your hectic pace, going to the store, dealing with family, friends, interactions, nonstop stimulation of the digital nature and the human nature. It can get a little stressful, not to say negative, but stressful is all forms of stimulus accumulating and making life a little tough. And when you can get good at lowering your heart rate on demand and practicing this in the gym, for example, sitting on an exercise bike, pedaling quickly for seven to 10 seconds, and then cruising for the next 60 seconds and watching that heart rate lower, lower, lower. It's a wonderfully meditative and nurturing activity that is going to boost your recovery. No, the seven to 10 second sprint's not gonna set you back. It's not gonna make you tired. You could do six of them probably, especially no impact. I mean, I don't know about sprinting and doing a seven second sprint the day after a tough workout, but just getting that heart rate up, spike really quick, and then bringing it back down methodically, wonderful activity. Another example that Joel brings from his rebound workout concept is let's say doing a deadline lift, but doing the positive lift only. So that's the lifting off the ground, getting it up to height, and then dropping it on the ground so that you do not have to engage the muscles for the negative contraction because that's where the muscle soreness is generated. That's where the uh, the muscle damage occurs when you're lowering the weight, the eccentric contraction. So you're doing positives, you're doing breathing, stretching, mobility, range of motion, some quick sprints, heart rate lowering stuff, and you go out of the gym feeling better than when you came in. Rebound work workouts. So I am integrating those into my situation lately. It feels great to stay active and move every single day instead of having those days where I call them rest days, recovery days, and I'm not doing much. And accordingly, I'm feeling tired, I'm feeling sluggish, feeling lazy, blaming it on the workout from the previous day, but I would be very well served to go do something like a rebound session. Finally, an awesome 
conversation that I had with Craig Marker of strongfirst.com. He's an associate of Pavel Sutzelin, one of the most prominent fitness experts in the country. He's been credited with popularizing kettlebell training in America. And Craig and Pavel, man, these guys are definitely on the cutting edge, so much so that I want to do an entire program on the concept of hit versus hurt high-intensity interval training versus high-intensity repeat training. I have changed this myself in recent months, and it's been an absolutely fantastic improvement in my training methods. So you're familiar with the term HIT. They throw it around all the time in the gym. It means high-intensity interval training. So any type of workout where you're having work intervals and rest intervals. You've probably also heard of Tabata, where the interval is a two-to-one ratio. So you go hard for 20 seconds, rest for 10 seconds, or go hard for 40 seconds, rest for 20 seconds. Uh, We'll get into that further in the dedicated show. Uh, But for now, I want to describe that, the high-intensity interval training. A lot of these workouts go for a sustained duration of time. So you're doing a a spinning class where you're doing intervals for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Uh, Your basic boot camp workout or your step class or your Zumba class is looking like a hit session where you're working, 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 and then you get a little break and then you're working again. Um, In contrast, high-intensity repeat training. What that means is you do a high-intensity effort and then you rest for a sufficient duration so that you can repeat in terms of the quality of the effort. So for me, I talk about my sprint workouts all the time on the Primal Endurance podcast for years and in the books, how important sprinting is for hormonal benefit, anti-aging, burst of anti-aging hormones to complete your fitness protocol and not just be a cardiovascular athlete or a, a muscle person, but getting out there and doing explosive sprints, the ultimate primal genetic ancestor workout that keeps us sharp and delays the aging process. So I've been sprinting devotedly for, uh, geez, now it's been uh, 12 years since I switched over to primal blueprint lifestyle and uh, kind of rejected the endurance-focused training protocol that I'd followed for many years before that. But my sprint workouts have always been really tough and grueling because after all, they're a sprint workout. I'm a guy who's got that endurance mindset. I know how to suffer. I know how to push through the pain and the fatigue. I also recover really quickly, unlike a true sprinter, because I have that endurance background. I don't have a high explosiveness on the spectrum from uh, Usain Bolt to uh, uh, Galen Rupp, the marathon runner. I'm more toward the endurance scene, having been uh, on the triathlon Uh, background for so long. So my workouts have always looked like uh, a sprint, pretty much all out, only doing 100 meters, maybe working up to 200 meters, and then a very short rest period where I just catch my breath and then I hit it again. And I feel just fine. And the quality of sprint is pretty close to the previous one. And I can do four or five or six times 100 meters, or oftentimes I would do two times 200 meters followed by four to six times 100 meters. So not much rest. Get the session done. Get out of there. I'm feeling pumped up. I'm ready to suffer and have 
the have a knock off a sprint workout. I'm doing a couple few times a month only, two to three times a month, because afterward, I feel pretty trashed, man. Not right away. Right away, I feel great. I'm buzzed on endorphins, stress hormones. I'm going through my day. Uh, glad to do that sprint workout. And then the next morning or even the next afternoon, there's a real lull that I've experienced 36 hours after a sprint workout. So I sprinted at 8 a.m. Tuesday morning, Wednesday afternoon, you're going to find me under my desk crashed out with a big nap and just feeling uh, the, the tightness and the soreness and the aching come in. And this has been happening this way for many, many years. Even though I've been building and, and trying to gain my competency in sprinting, the workouts are really tough. I have a long recovery time after where I have to work through the soreness over and over. What the heck was I thinking? Honestly, I was applying the endurance athlete's mentality to my sprint workouts. Rather than a total focus on quality, I was also going for that workout effect, that cardiovascular training effect, which was completely unnecessary. I didn't need to get good at returning to sprint after a shorter rest period and endure the uh, the suffering and the long recovery time accordingly. So after having the uh, discussion with Craig Marker and also Joel Jameson influenced my decision at around the exact same time, just putting all the pieces together, that's what I'm doing for you on the podcast, man. The final piece, of course, running everything by the great Wizard of Oz, Andrew McNaughton, my longtime training partner, racing partner on the pro circuit, possibly the most knowledgeable endurance coach on the planet who no one's heard of because he doesn't care about promoting himself. He cares about helping people. But I said, check this out, dude. Look what these guys threw at me. They said, just rest for a long time and then do another sprint and don't worry about the, you know, the, the pattern and the, uh, the, the quick recovery. He's like, absolutely. In fact, you should only do three three sprints of 100 meters, that's it, representing a super high quality workout. So armed with that support and knowledge from the great leaders of the planet, yes, I am now doing, I'm doing four, sorry, Andrew, four seems good to me, uh, but I'm resting as long as I need to in between efforts so that I feel really strong and focused and the quality of each sprint is just as good as the previous one. After four, I can notice a tiny bit of unraveling there in the last third of the fourth uh, effort. You know what I mean? The last 30 yards of the football field. And that's when I know I've reached my limit and done uh, an excellent session. That, by the way, is much, much easier to recover from because I didn't slam myself with the uh, grueling aspect of short rest and going back and doing another sprint. So I'm focused on quality. You can do the same thing and apply this same mentality to whatever kind of workout you're doing in the gym, uh, whatever sport, whether you're in a water sport or you're cycling, uh, doing your kettlebells, uh, your maximum sustained power training, which we talk about so much in the Primal Endurance book. This is Jacques DeVore's method of preserving uh, a certain percentage of maximum power throughout the workout. And a really great example, a visual that you'll uh, take with you. Uh, if you're getting lost, I hope not, but he talks about, uh, let's say, picking a uh, a difficult weight for a deadlift or a session of squats. 
maybe your um, eight rep max or something. So you pick a weight that you could do eight times if you were asked to do it all out. Let's say it's 200 pounds on the deadlift. And in a maximum sustained power session, you're going to do a succession of sets with a declining number of reps in order to make sure that you're rested and explosive for each effort. So whereby a normal person doing a deadlift workout would go up to that bar and do eight reps the first time because it's their eight rep max weight as I described, and then they rest a minute, and then they go back and do eight more reps, and boy, the sixth and the seventh and the eighth rep uh, on that second set were tough, and so they did eight and eight, This is a very simplified example to make the point. So in contrast, if you're doing a maximum sustained power set, you might do six nice powerful ones on your first set. Then you might come back with sufficient rest and do four super awesome powerful ones with perfect form. Then you might rest, come back, do three. Then another set of three. Then another set of two. Then another set of two then another set of two, then another set of two. Get what I'm doing here? We're doing these sets that are super easy because there's only two or three as you're getting a little bit tired, but you're accumulating a body of work that is fabulous because every time you lifted that weight, you were powerful and you were explosive. And yes, after you do several sets of just two reps, they're all adding up even though you're resting a minute or whatever between sets, and then you're done because you start to notice your form waver and the fatigue accumulate. But when you add up, let's say a sequence of reps where you went six, four, three, three, two, 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 I think that adds up to 24, where the original example of eight and then another eight, that represents 33% less weight lifted and also more soreness and fatigue because you busted out eight and eight and you really got uh, fatigued there at the end. So you get that contrast between the maximum sustained power session, which was clean and explosive, and then the fatiguing session where you did maximum effort set, maximum effort set, and then you're kind of blown out. Or the Brad example where I'm doing my sprints, if it's six times 100 meters, I blast one, I jog only across the width of the football field, blast another one, jog the width of the football field, blast another one, and pretty soon it's getting tough. I can make it through the session. My form's not cracking. I'm not looking like a jerk on the sixth one. But boy, did I just put out a ton of effort that's going to have a lot of recovery time. Where the most prominent goal of the session was to generate maximum explosive force and have a peak performance, high intensity effort, much better achieved by resting more in between the sets. And when I do the full length show, uh, contrasting high intensity repeat training with high intensity interval training, we will get into the science. We'll wade in there with my help as a guide, the layman trying to translate this stuff and simplify it. Oh, I'm particularly qualified to do that. So I think you're going to enjoy the follow up uh, show, uh, peak performance without suffering and contrasting high intensity repeat training with high intensity interval training. But for this show, I think that will awaken you to new possibilities and optimizations for your workout patterns, regardless of your fitness level. So if your eyes are glossing over thinking that you're just a casual exerciser, I will strongly argue that this stuff is 
extremely relevant to you and maybe even more relevant than to uh, the high-performing athlete who has a little bit more cushion and a little bit more margin of error to open up the throttle and bounce back quickly as opposed to someone who can go into a tailspin just because of ill-informed approaches that are too strenuous and stressful. So again, Phil Maffetone, keeping that aerobic heart rate at 180 minus your age and beats per minute, never exceeding 90% of your maximum heart rate, even on the explosive efforts. And oh, as a little aside there, when I'm sprinting for 10 seconds or 15 seconds maximum, I'm not really worried about heart rate. That's not an operating variable there because the effort is so short that heart rate is sort of insignificant. So even if I do uh, hear the beep, 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 that my heart rate exceeded uh, 90% uh, in the aftermath of one of those sprints, what we're more concerned about are those sustained efforts where you're doing uh, a a time trial, uh, a series of longer intervals preparing for a specific competition. And again, those are uh, high-risk, long recovery time, and minimal return on investment compared to uh, shortening the duration of your peak performance high-intensity efforts and just going for the top end. Next, we have Brian McKenzie advocating for the comprehensive approach where you respect flexibility, mobility, functionality, spend 15 minutes of every workout hour doing accordant drills. You talk about things like breathing, putting recovery at center stage, adding the power and the speed if you're an endurance athlete, uh, doing the opposite if you're a power and speed athlete, working on a little bit of endurance investigating how breathing practice can help minimize the stress impact and stimulate recovery. And then we go to Joel Jameson and his recovery-based training protocols, including the fascinating concept of rebound workouts, where you get up, you get moving, get the blood flowing, doing some gentle stretches, breathing exercises, mobility work, range of motion work in the gym, doing those short sprints and focusing on lowering that heart rate, getting good at that, doing the positive uh, deadlift or squat exercises where you get a little bit of hard work done. Uh, You send a message to the nervous system to perform and then recover quickly, and that's what you'll get good at doing uh, offline when you're out of the gym going through your busy day. Uh, Then finally, the uh, concept of high-intensity repeat training versus the more strenuous and fatiguing high-intensity interval training uh, based on my conversation with Craig Marker of Strong First. You can listen to that show on the Primal Endurance Podcast and my everyday example of going out there and doing my sprints, but taking more rest time in between efforts so they can really be uh, quality and explosive and not have that prolonged recovery time that comes with a more strenuous workout. Similarly, with the maximum sustained power example, where you're doing high quality uh, sets that might not be as uh, accumulating as many reps, but you're feeling strong all the way through and you're doing a sequence like six, four, three, three, two, 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 rather than eight and eight. And you're lifting more total weight anyway. You're getting more work done anyway with less stress, less recovery time. That's some good stuff right there. Go out there and try it out. Oh, and speaking of a natural, authentic plug at this point, go check out dnafit.com. We'll run the spot right after this, but right now I'm going to tell you to go take 30% off anything, all their products, with the code, the unforgettable code, GOY30. 
get over yourself 30 G-O-Y 30, enter that into the field. You're going to get 30% off all their products. They actually now have an integration service with 23andMe and Ancestry.com. If you've done those tests, you can combine the results. They're using the same database. Fascinating breakthrough. Uh, But the reason I'm bringing that up now is because of the fascinating insight I obtained from them that I was 56% strength and power and 44% endurance uh, with my genetic profile of my musculature. And this is an insight that occurred uh, in recent years. I had no idea back when I was an endurance athlete, and I believed it would have been fabulous to understand that I was more weighted towards strength, power, explosiveness than I thought, and I could have changed my training accordingly. In the example I just discussed in the show, where I took more rest periods and enabled a more quality sprint effort with less breakdown and recovery time, that suggests that I was honoring my genetics that weren't pure endurance. Like if I came out 93% endurance and 7% strength and power, I would be considered a mule, a pack animal that can load up the bags and walk up the Grand Canyon in five hours in the hot weather without drinking any water or complaining. But that's a whole different beast than someone who has those genes signaling for power and explosiveness and accordingly benefits from more recovery time, not just between uh, 100 meter sprints during a workout, but also more recovery time in general between strenuous efforts. And that's the part I missed as an athlete was trying to get up every day and go for it again, because that's what all my peers were doing on the triathlon circuit, because these were endurance machines. And I was trying to be something that maybe wasn't totally aligned with my genetics. So when you get the DNA fit test, you can make better decisions about the exact nature of your workouts. There's a lot of support supporting material and counseling. So do it. Thanks a lot. Let the good times roll. So Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, we're, we're talking about health and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen uh, condiments on the table. It's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the Primal Kitchen Wilder. <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing, actually, she does. We have a local state park called Wilder Ranch. Oh, yeah. And uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing. Which <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that. It's just too per- <laughs> so, so endearing. Uh, how old um, is she? She's four. Oh my gosh. So she likes like the mayo on a Oh yeah, she, so, she loves those. So we love them as well. We have, uh, we, we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo, we eat the balsamic, we eat the, the ranch, um, the avocado oil we use all the time. And, and so, you know, that's completely genuine. And I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the ass out of condiments. I really appreciate that. What an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish, Balance, Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen, you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. <laughs> and uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park because they're, they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> it's my pleasure.